0: The Spiel is sponsored by TimeWellSpent.org, who would like to remind you that any time spent playing games is time well spent. From their padded
1: cell in Indianapolis, Indiana, this is The Spiel, a show about games and the people who love them. Episode 40, The Board Game at the End of the Universe. So, hi there, and welcome to The Spiel. I'm Stephen Conway. And I'm David Coulson. And we've got kind of a super size mega-galactic edition here of The Spiel this week. We knew we were in for it, and we had to just bite the bullet someday and cover a, a big, long, rainy day, take-all-day-all-year kind of game, and, and it's finally come here in episode 40. <laughs> Twilight Imperium 3rd <third> Edition. Ah, <sighs> so... <sighs> Just, just to warn, warn you for what you're in for here. In the list, we're going to be covering a big, ugly this week. It's going to take us a good, almost hour to cover, uh, <laughs> cover the the ins and outs. We're not going through the whole rule book. Never fear, we're just going to try to give you a good overview of the game, so you can see whether or not it's a game for you. But any game that takes almost all day to play takes takes a little while to to go through to kind of give you exactly. a good sense of of what's all going on in here. So. We've got that to look forward to in in episode forty, and we've also got some cool backshelf spotlight stuff coming up. Great backshelf spotlights: Master Labyrinths and uh, Ricochet Robots. Very cool games. Um, a very a, a game that just goes tilts the charts on uh, <laughs> truckloads of goober. <laughs> You're going to have to get Bingo. out your checkbook for this one, but it's probably worth it if you've got the cool the petty cash. <laughs> <laughs> and then we've got a cool the truckloads or the uh, game sommelier a really interesting challenge that has to do with uh remakes of games whether good or bad kind of (laughs) get steering you in the right direction there so spiel has reached middle age here at 40 it's going to be older than dave before you know it if that's possible yeah that that can't ever happen so we better get on with the show before dave starts drawing social security (laughs) game news and notes
0: Well, welcome to News and Notes, everybody. Uh, got a couple things of interest this week for you guys. I have a local listener, David Shuth, who sent me some really cool information about StarCraft, the board game. This is kind of freaky. Fantasy Flight is actually launching an organized system for pre-ordering games and getting promotional stuff with it, and this applies to just brick-and-mortar stores. It's kind of wacky. You go to Fantasy Flight's website, and they have a little page on there where you can sign up, put your name in, and pick a store near you that you would like to pre-order the game from. And Fantasy Flight will take care of sending your information to that store so the store can order it and then contact you when it comes in. Pretty Hmm. freaky. And the benefit is that you're going to get some promotional goodies from it. Um, Dave says that he thinks the promotional goodies are three different pieces of artwork, one poster and two smaller prints all that I believe come from the upca- upcoming release of StarCraft Two, the hmm. video game. Oh, okay. So if you're into that, that's kind of a cool way to get some of that stuff. I. It sounds like a strange kind of thing to be doing. So yeah. I'm, I'm not going to judge. I mean, because you've been able to preorder stuff online forever. Yeah. you know, And with last week talking <clears throat> about the price that we saw on StarCraft, now all of a sudden they're setting up this funky preorder thing for brick and mortars. Seems like it's all connected some evil, weird way.
1: Well, there's an interesting – I don't know that you've been keeping up with the forums, but we have an interesting discussion going on there. Edmund Hack uh, posted – he was wondering whether you were referring to the Supreme Court decision that came down earlier this year that seems – to allow businesses perhaps to what what I would define as price fix Absolutely. their products to favor or prejudice uh, their business towards brick-and-mortar stores and against online retailers in some cases. At least that's how it plays out or may play out in the, the board game universe. And there's, there's an interesting discussion going on back and forth about this on our forums. Uh, I definitely come down on the side of thinking that it's a very misguided uh, – Policy by any game company that decides to really be aggressive about that because right. I, think I think it a, would be a big big mistake. In the short term, it seems like to me that they might gain gain some profits in the short term, but in the long term, trying to, you know, shoulder out online businesses is like, you know, putting your finger in a dam that's leaking when the flood <laughs> is already <What? laughs> already up to your neck. It's it's online businesses are here to stay. Right,
0: exactly. And, like, historically, isn't it that I mean there's only been a handful of products and companies that have been successfully able to have products that they price fixed and are still hot yeah. other things just went fine you're going to make us all it's just gone yeah you know and to me they're killing themselves because i mean they're selling their games for the same amount of money regardless of whether this online business is buying 3000 copies or a small brick and mortar is buying five you know <laughs> unless my ignorance unless i just don't understand the business world are they not getting the same out of those things or are they having to
1: sell them at a lower price to those online companies? Yeah. Uh, You know, I think that's a very valid point and I think that You know, prejudicing brick and mortar over online sales ignores the fact that many places don't have a friendly local game store right that you don't have access to these games from in any other respect. I mean, I understand I come from a background of working in a friendly local game store helping them build a web business and also having worked with and understand the the online, you know, commerce and so I think I've got a foot equally in both camps and I don't see You know, I understand that the world has changed and brick and mortar stores need to be able to adapt and find a niche that might not be the same niche that they had when online businesses didn't exist. Right. But doing this kind of strategy is not going to prevent You know, online businesses from still taking advantage of it because I'm glad to see that not every game company is going to kind of take that price fixing strategy and you know try to say, well, if you're not brick and mortar, we're not going to sell to you at all, or you have to buy it at some higher price, you know, to even out the the competition. Jay Tumelson of Rio, there's a link in one of the posts that I put to a quote from him saying, you know, it's not his business to decide how other businesses sell his games because that, I mean, going right back to your point about You know, he gets the same amount, whether it's the online business or the the brick and mortar. Ultimately,
0: it's up to us, the customer, who's going to decide where and how we want to buy our games. And if, you know, if it's the online or if it's the brick and mortar, if one of those is going to suffer, it's going to be our decision. You know, I don't think it's up to the game companies
1: to decide how and where we should buy our games. Well, and if you up the prices on games and you have less money, you know, if your money is not going to go as far, my argument would be that you're going to spend (laughs) your, your money to get the most bang for your buck, and you might go with the companies that don't have this price-fixing strategy right. simply because of the economics of it, because you can buy more games for the the same amount of dollars than, you know, oh, hey, I have to have that cool thing, but it's going to cost me 20 bucks more. Well, I think a lot of people are going to vote with their pocketbooks in that. Yeah, I, I agree. <laughs> cool. Okay, well, on to something a little less heavy.
0: <laughs> um, I've just stumbled onto a game that looks ultra-cool, um, this game is called Utopia. It was originally supposed to be out for Essen, but unfortunately something's holding it up, so we're not exactly sure when this is going to come up. It is a game that is published by um, Matigo Games. That's my guess of how to pronounce it. It's a game designed by Ludovic Viola and Arnaud Urban. Um, now, this is the same company the same designers that had the, just put out the game with Rio Grande called Kronos, and that's with a K. Oh. And that was the company's first game, so this is the, kind of the second thing. Um I I'll read you a little bit of flavor text real quick. The king of Utopia has invited princes of the greatest civilizations of antiquity to come and live within the walls of his city, welcoming in doing so the architectural wealth of their faraway cities. As the king's minister, your sovereign has given you the mission to welcome and accompany these princes and princesses who will present themselves at the gates of the city. Every development added to the city made by your guests increases your privilege or your prestige. So it's kind of a civilization building thing, but with all euro mechanics. I don't see like any little military troops or any stuff like that. From what hmm. I read, it looks to be all euro. but what really stands out to me is the goober. It just hit me immediately. The board game is gorgeous. The little figures are awesome. There's these monument figures and these wonder figures that are um, based on monuments and wonders that we a- that actually exist and the sculpts. Are just gorgeous. They look detailed enough that we're going to see painted versions of these up on Board Game Geek
1: in yeah. <laughs> no time
0: at all once they hit. Hard to imagine someone
1: not doing that
0: exactly. And the rules are up. The rules are the rules are posted. Maybe four or five pages. Looks very simple. Uh, when this comes out, I'll be excited to get a hold of this
1: puppy and check it out. So my news and notes. I guess I should have interjected mine. Kind of when we were talking about the the online and price fixing stuff earlier because like it kind of has a relation to that right. in, a, in a sad way. But I think it's kind of double-edged sword because I think it's a, it's bad on the personal level for this particular business, but I think it might actually point to the, the health of the overall hobby. And that is that uh, Adam Spielt, a German online uh, re- retailer of games, right. is actually going to close up its mail order part Man. of its business. It's going to keep open its uh, other you know other ways of doing business i think but the online mail order stuff is is going to go away AutumnSpielt.de, it's been a great source for online game orders for those of us not li- lucky enough to live in germany the sad news is you know they've decided to discontinue all their mail order stuff at the end of this year um, any standing pre or back orders are currently canceled so if you have any of those, just so you know, they were known for their excellent customer service and obsessive attention to packing every game with care, like to the point Bingo. of like double boxing everything. <laughs> just amazing customer service and, and attention to that kind of detail. Um, they're having closeout sales that are probably going to be um, still going on by the time you're listening to this show. So you may actually want to check out to see if um, you can – Score some good deals at at the expense of. So during the closeout, Adam's they're still going to ship overseas. Yes. And yes, I think from now until the end of the year, or until they're just their inventory is is sold down. I think okay. whichever happens first. And I think if they're marking stuff down, they're probably going <laughs> to be gone right. soon. Now I know, I mean, it's I feel really badly for for Autumn Spiel because I know that they've done a a really good service to the gaming hobby and and you know providing us access to things, but in a way they've kind of almost i guess in my mind put themselves out of business because they built the hobby up to the point that there are a lot of american and other retailers now around the world that are carrying more import games that right. people can offer, you know, here in the states for a cheaper price and that people can get closer to home without having to pay the, you know, shipping prices from germany. That it's hard to compete with that. That you know they've helped the yeah. rise of popularity, and it's really sad to see that they're not going to be able to to keep cashing in on it in a way. Yeah, that you is know. that's a bummer because they were you know one of the best
0: you know to, to order from
1: overseas. So, so that's going to be sad to see him go. Sad to see him go, but I think, you know, in terms of the health of the overall game hobby, you know, it's on an individual level, it's sad, but on a, the other level, we still do have choices, and I think there'll be some people that will hopefully be encouraged to to carry more imports, you know, as, as maybe a result of that. Absolutely. So, so check out Day for some some last-minute deals. So before we go, of course, we have to resolve Name That Game from, from last week, the, the puzzle contest <laughs> we run every week, uh, where, you know, we give you the clue that's going to lead you to the name of a game and uh before we get any further let's just play back last week's puzzle and then we'll get to the answer and then get to the winner what is just perfect unless of course it's been diminished three words that a cockney would use to offer you a wildebeest nine Nine that game. game governor so, you can't blame Dave and I for this particular puzzle. You have our friend and co-spieler Mark Weaver to blame for this puzzle. Uh, I have Mark on the line via Skype, and Mark is going to give us the answer to the dreaded uh, puzzle from episode 39. So, without further ado, Mark, take it away and give us the answer.
2: All right. The answer is, of course, Fifth Avenue. <laughs>
1: So you can't leave it at that. You have to actually explain how in the world those clues add up to Fifth Avenue.
2: Oh, it doesn't make sense?
1: (laughs) Well, I think to some people, after they've gotten themselves up off the floor from laughing, it makes sense. All right. (laughs) But for those who didn't quite get it, make it make sense.
2: (laughs) Okay, well, the first part was easy. I had lots of choices to come up with a word for fifth. I was thinking either a fifth of whiskey or... Was uh, the Fifth Element of the movie? But then um, I thought of the music since I'm sort of a part-time musician, and it just came out because a fifth can either be perfect or diminished as a chord, like you know major minor chords everybody is pretty familiar with. But the fifth and the fourth can be either perfect or diminished, so that it just came out. Say, so, well, the fifth is perfect, so it, that's that's the perfect clue. <laughs> and then the other one, I was just struggling right and left, it took me forever just to come up with something. I usually go with the puzzles from the starting with a game
3: mm-hmm.
2: that I know, because I don't know a whole lot of games actually, I hate to admit it, but that <laughs> is true, so I just couldn't figure out a way to come up with a word for avenue. <laughs> I was working on street, boulevard, how can I make this something, and then I don't know, all of a sudden it just came to me, that if I separated and made it three words, you could... Having a new a wildebeest I don't know I had to look up that too i said I, is there another word for new g n u and then, and it was wildebeest so, and I said, okay, well, then I'll just make it a sentence instead of a one word clue. Cockney <laughs> is asking you whether you would like to own a wildebeest <laughs> would you like to have a new and that was that's the whole that's the whole story same talking. Quite true.
1: I think it's great. When I finally got the... You and Dave being the musicians, of course, zeroed in on the the fifth part first. But for me, the new was what, what sealed the deal for me. I, I was struggling with the fifth, but when I realized it was avenue... <laughs> <laughs>
2: well, that's great. I, I figured as soon as you, somebody got the first half, the rest would just be automatic. And then you'd have to figure out why in the world does that fit in with the clue. Right. <laughs> That you came up from the other other end. That's really cool.
1: <laughs> well, we had we had a lot of correct uh, guesses on this, and we actually had almost twenty correct guessers. On, ah, that's very neat. That's on very this neat. puzzle, so uh, there were definitely and and it seems split down the middle. Some of the musician or musically related ones came at it from your angle, and other people came at it from uh, from the Cockney angle. We did oh. get we did get several people uh, complaining about our terrible Cockney accents, <laughs> oh. <laughs> saying saying they thought Dick Van Dyke's accent was bad in Mary Poppins, but we oh. put we put him to shame. <laughs>
3: Poor so, guy. Poor guy.
1: <laughs> so next time we're gonna have to have you do the uh, Cockney accent. Ah, <laughs> uh,
2: have to practice. I'll have to
1: practice. <laughs> well, thanks, Mark. We look forward to uh, future contributions from you. And, okay. And, uh we we plan on uh, actually including you in the mail uh, with your puzzles from now on. So you're gonna have Mark at the spiel.net So you can torture people with uh, with their guesses during the when the clues are actually. You know, going on each
2: episode. <laughs> oh, okay. Okay. Sounds very terrifying. <laughs> <laughs> oh,
1: our listeners are, are kind and gentle. They're, they're fine. Okay. <laughs> For the most I'll part. Old. Well, thanks, Mark, and uh, spiel on, brother.
0: Okay. Now that the groans are all done, we need to <laughs> actually. <laughs> yeah, exactly. We need to pick a winner. I will be rolling a very large die, so back <laughs> away from your headphones. <laughs> you Got
1: to count all those pips. Ooh, that was a good Oh, Hey. Let's see. Ta da! Uh, Philip Hoffman is the winner of the Name That Game contest for episode 39. Uh, he wins a copy of Kalis Magna Carta, uh, courtesy of Time Will Spent, our lovely sponsor. So we'll be getting in contact with you very soon, Philip, and get that game on its way to you very soon. Congratulations. Uh, remember, there's another Name That Game puzzle coming up in this episode, so be listening. Uh, the winner of uh, this Name That Game will win a copy of uh, Ricochet Robots, Ooh. courtesy of Time Well Spent, cool. and that might just show up in this
0: episode later hmm. on. You, you
3: hmm. never know.
0: <laughs> and and it's also, we need to say real quick, that the uh, Name That Game puzzle is submitted by a listener. Oh, yes. Um, Larry Mendel sent us this one in, so... Uh, look for this. It's pretty fun and maybe we'll get him to
1: explain something in the next episode. (laughs) The list. Over a decade ago, we took up the challenge of playing every unplayed game in our collection. Each week on the spiel, we play one or two games off our unplayed list. The list started over 100 and has been as low as 30, but we're at peace with the fact that we'll probably never get to the end. After all, Life would be awfully boring without new games to play. Let's see which games get crossed off the list. Well, I I sort of took the bullet with uh, Mocker a few months ago and and had a big ugly one that I had to try to give you a, a general sense of, and now it's Dave's turn to... To bite that bullet.
3: Humana, humana, humana. <laughs>
1: he made me bite the bullet by uh, <laughs> by playing it again after I played three marathon, terrible, long sessions of, of Twilight Imperium long ago. Different edition of the game, I'll fully admit that. So it'll be interesting to see uh, how this how this comes out. But we're not going to try to give you every last little rule because we would be here for five hours if we did yes. that. Almost as long as it would take to play the game. <laughs> but we hope that you'll get a sense of. The game overall and whether or not it's a game that will appeal to you by our little rundown of the game. And I think I think you're going to come away with a good sense of of how this game works and whether it's a game for you or not. So Dave. Cool. (laughs) Well, without further ado, I guess I will start off with the gory details.
0: So, the game we played off the list is, in fact, Twilight Imperium, the 3rd edition. It was published in 2005 by Fantasy Flight Games, designed by Christian T. Peterson. It's for 3-6 to players, ages 12 and up. Retails for $80. You can find it online for between $50 and $65. Now, before we start talking about the game, since this is, in fact, the 3rd edition, we know that there must have been a 1st and a 2nd. So in 1997 the first edition of Twilight Imperium came out. This was in fact the first game for Fantasy Flight Games. Those of you who don't know Christian T. Peterson is the founder and head of Fantasy Flight Games and this was their first kind of big game that they put out there. The first edition had several expansions, Borderlands, Distant Suns, Twilight Armada, The Outer Rim. It wasn't until three years later in 2000 that the second edition finally came out, and there was also an expansion for it, Hope's End. And then finally five years later in 2005, we have the third edition that came out, and just recently we have an expansion for it called Shattered Empires. So... There's been many, many versions of this guy. We obviously know that this um, it was a, is a love. This game is a love of Christian T. Peterson because he doesn't want to see it die. He just keeps reinventing it over and over. Some people agree that he's done amazing work with it, and other people will definitely not agree with that. Um, before we go on, there was kind of a branch um, off of Twilight Imperium using the same world. There was like a Disc Wars style game that they put out in 2001 called Armada that was just oh, right. set in that. the Twilight Imperium world. And while we're talking about that, the new game Dune that Fantasy Flight <laughs> is working on, if they don't get the rights for the Dune world, then it will be set in, in the, the Twilight. Twilight Imperium world. Okay. So, big world. Fantasy Flight has a lot of uses for this world, obviously. So, without further ado, let's move on and kind of give you a little overview or a little story of the game, because that's one thing that this game doesn't lack there is truckloads of story, which is really cool. So in Twilight Imperium, each player takes on the role of a great interstellar race. Each race has one goal, to claim the Imperial Throne on Mechatol Rex and lead the galaxy into a new age of glory. However, the road to the Imperial Throne is long and the galaxy holds many dangers. In pursuing their ultimate goal, each race will strive to attain a perfect balance of strategy, diplomacy, resource management, and yes brute force. So if your race is ready for such a challenge, then your time has come. Kind of a little paraphrasing from the Two pages of story <laughs> that's that's in the rules. They've done some nice world building and
1: giving definitely. you a sense, sort of like a Blue Moon, the card game. Blue Absolutely, Moon. I sort of think of those in the same, same
0: yeah, breath. Definitely could... give you a wealth of insight into the world. So, in game terms, victory is going to come to the first player to accumulate ten victory points, and victory points can be earned by achieving objectives during the game or by choosing the Imperial Strategy card. And we'll talk more about all that later. So. What I've decided to do, the best way I think to describe this, is to break down the setup and the components into three areas. The board setup, the general area setup, and your individual player setup. And hopefully by the time I'm done you'll have kind of a basic idea um, of how the components work, how some of the mechanics work, and some some concepts that you have to understand before we talk about a game turn. So let's start with the board setup. Now the board is made up of hexagonal tiles. Each tile is called a system. the Mechatol Rex is the starting system in the center of the table, and then you'll build three rings of hexes out from that. And each player will have a home system in the third ring, the farthest out from Mechatol Rex. Now, each of these hexes, like I said, is called a system that it will contain a planet, a group of planets, and then there's some special ones that like are a wormhole, a supernova, and an asteroid field. The majority of the game takes place on those systems that contain, that contain planets. So let's take a quick look at these planets. There's two or three important things about each planet that you need to know. There's a resource number. Now, resources represent a planet's economic surplus, and the resources can be spent by its controller to purchase military units and to get technological advancements. The second important number is the influence number. Influence represents a planet's population, knowledge, and political importance. And the influence can be spent by the planet's controller to acquire command, commander, ugh, command counters, action cards, and votes in the Galactic Council. Now the third thing, every planet doesn't have this, but some planets have a technology symbol. And this represents local knowledge or a natural resource that's important to a specific area of science. The controller of this planet will get like a discount when they're actually trying to purchase a technology of that specific type. So those are the three kind of important numbers or aspects of a planet. Um, associated with that, there's a deck of planet cards. There's one card for each planet on the board. So whenever you gain control of a planet, whether it be at the beginning of the game in your home world or sometime during the game, you take the planet card that
1: matches that planet. um that's Any, more of like a bookkeeping thing because yeah, the, exactly. the board's going to get so big that you can be like, now what, what, what does that heck? planet have on it? Exactly. But have to move all of your stuff off the tile. You can easily see. You can easily see which planet you have and what um, influence
0: and resources you have available to you. Now during the game, the mechanic, the way that the planet cards work, or if you spend the resources or influence of a planet, you'll turn the card upside down to show that that planet's been exhausted for this current turn at the end of the game turn All those will be turned face-up, refreshed, and you'll be able to use those resources and influence for the next game turn. So that's pretty much it with the board, except we actually did... I don't know why we were silly. We went ahead and threw in the optional rule of distant (laughs) suns when we played. And this adds domain counters. And you basically shuffle up all these counters and put uh, one face down on each of the planets out there. So in addition to just landing on a planet and taking it over, you might find good stuff or you might find bad stuff as you (laughs) land on these planets, which was pretty cool. So let's take a quick look at the common area setup. Um, this is pretty much you've got a deck of action cards in here, a deck of political cards, um, the victory point track, um, the strategy cards, which Steven's going to talk about in a minute. And I really don't call them cards because they're more of little boards. Yeah, they call them <laughs> cards, but they're definitely not cards. Um, The one thing I will take some time to spend uh, talking about is the objective cards. Since the objective cards are kind of how you score the majority of your victory points, there are 10 Stage 1 cards and 10 Stage 2 cards. Um, The very first thing you're going to do is take um, three of the Stage 2, shuffle in a card called the Imperium Rex. Remember we said you win the game when you get 10 victory points. However, the Imperium Rex card is a card that, if it's drawn, will end the game prematurely before somebody may have a chance to get that 10 points. Um, but anyway, you shuffle those guys up. You take um, 10 of your Stage 1 cards, pull 6 of those guys out, shuffle those up, put them on top of the Stage 2 cards. You end up with a deck of 10 cards, knowing that somewhere in the last 4 cards is that Imperium Rex card that could end the game prematurely before somebody gets their 10 points. So it's kind of wacky. The good thing is... 20 objectives in each game there's only going to be 10 used so you're never going to know the mix of objectives for from game to game um, and just the objectives are revealed whenever a player executes a strategy card which steven will talk about in a little bit so the last thing and the most important thing are each player has kind of like their own area where they set up their truck loads of stuff um, so we'll take a quick look at that Um, The race that each player is going to play is actually determined during the board setup. The home world that you draw randomly determines which race you're going to play. And at the start of the game, you'll go ahead, once that race has been determined, you'll collect all of your little plastic units. And these are your fighters, your carriers, your destroyers, your cruisers, your dreadnought. The, the painful war sun. Um, then you've got some um, plastic guys that represent ground forces. You've got things that represent your PDS or your planetary defense system and your space docks. Space docks are where you're going to be building all of your uh, other units in the game. Um, You get a technology deck that matches the same color of the plastic pieces that you've chosen. It might be important to show you that um, the color of the plastic pieces you choose are not related to the races. So just because you're forced to play with the Emirates of Hassan or Hakan, you
1: can play black or blue or green their color is not associated with any one particular race. And just to give you a sense of sc- size and scale of the pieces, you know, if you're familiar with like axis and allies or perhaps even something like risk, uh-huh. you, you know, that's kind of the size of, of the pieces. Only there's a, a bajillion of, yeah, yeah. <laughs> of them. It's like that taken to the nth degree. Absolutely. And, and, uh, imagine the board taken up, you know, your whole, all with these little tiles taken up the whole table. And then each of these little tiles is going to eventually be filled yeah. with the different spacecraft and space stations and, we could barely dudes. fit the setup of the game on
0: our table. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> you know, forget about playing it, but um so like I said you get a technology deck and each person gets the exact same deck of cards that show um the technologies. What's unique here is that during the game you don't just buy any technology that you want. You have, there's a hierarchy, there's kind of a, like a flow chart or a technology tree. So if you want technology C, you first have to attain technology A and B first. And the flow chart is almost mind numbingly <laughs> insane to look at but um, once you do purchase the technologies they will help
1: you your race out in pretty much any way that you can fathom. Well, I think anyone familiar with uh, real-time strategy computer games that's a common you're used to seeing those kinds of trees uh, in a more right. interactive form Absolutely. you know once you've built your you know whatever your your blacksmith then you can <laughs> you know build armor and stuff and you can rate you, you know improve each one from step to step so right. um, I like the technology a lot I was I thought that
0: was very cool. Um, so now everybody's going to get a race sheet. And this is kind of like your overview of how the game runs. And it also has some very important things on it um some, where you keep track of some important things. So it shows you your starting units. It shows you which technology to start with. Um, it shows all of your special abilities. On the back side, it gives you, once again, a very in-depth look into your race, the history of your race, the traits of your race, and all that kind of fun stuff. It also um, has a good layout of a game turn, all the phases, all the actions that happen ...in a game turn, and then it goes ahead and shows all of your ships, their cost, their effectiveness in battle, their movements, and any special rules that they have. Um, There's also a little space on here for trade goods. Before we talk about the trade goods, each player is going to get two trade agreement cards... And through the use of these cards, you're going to be able to set up trade agreements with the other opponents, and that's how you're going to get your trade goods. And the thing about trade goods that's kind of neat is they're kind of wild. During the game, you can use your trade goods as either a resource or influence. So if you need more influence, you can bolster that by spending your trade goods. The same goes with resources, so that's kind of cool. I think the most important thing of your card is your um, command counter area. Because this kind of drives two or three of the main focuses in the game. So each person starts the game with 16 command counters, eight of which start out on your sheet. And the other eight are of, of which are a reserve, which you hope to be able to tap into later in the game. So the three areas are um, the strategy allocation, of which you, you start off with two command counters in there. This allows you to execute the second, secondary abilities of strategy cards, which Steven's gonna talk about here in a minute, which is very important. You start off with three command counters in your command pool. Um, these actually help you activate the systems on the board. So this kind of translates into however many you have here, that's how many actions you're gonna have in, in any any given, exactly, in any given game turn. The third spot is the command, um, It's the fleet supply, and the number of command counters in here um, basically shows you the maximum number of ships you're going to be allowed to have in any given system. So basically, your fleet size. If you've only got two counters in here, you're only going to have in each system a maximum of two ships. So you're going to want to increase the fleet supply as quick as possible. One other thing that's in your little personal play, um area is a secret objective card. At the very beginning of the game, you're dealt one of those. You can earn victory points from it, but nobody else knows what it is, and you're the only one that can complete it. So there's the three setups, kind of the board, the general area, and your little private area, which, like we
1: said, takes up yeah. an entire table easily. Did you mention in detail the, the special abilities that each of the races on the cards, too, because that kind of is that really the only place that that information is is listed the only place that information listed is on the okay. card itself exactly yeah. so if you need if you can't remember what makes your little group cuz each each little group has you know something right. That makes it. right there's
0: warmongering races <laughs> and tr- races that you know enjoy um
1: a wealth of trading so there's all kinds of cool special abilities and there's um in terms of replayability i mean that gives exactly. you exactly know, you might not play the game the same way depending upon which little alien race you know you end up with Exactly. or a mix game. of races exactly right So I think that covers
0: pretty much the setup and kind of gives you some of the ideas that the game has. So we'll kind of tackle a game turn. A game turn is divided into three phases. You've got the strategy phase, the action phase, and the status phase. So I'm going to go ahead and turn it over to Steven and kind of let him give you
1: the strategy phase. Yes, it's a very important uh, part of the game because it... it in large part dictates how the rest of the turn is going to play out by the decisions you make in this phase. So uh, your main goal in the strategy phase is to choose one of eight strategy cards. Your choice is going to determine your special ability for that turn and the order of play for the rest of the round. Uh, There are eight strategy cards and I'm going to list them in the order that dictates the the turn order Ah, from here on out. And this is, so this is the eight in order initiative, diplomacy, political, Logistics, Trade, Warfare, Technology, and lastly, Imperial. Uh, The person who controls the speaker token from the previous turn is going to select the first strategy card, the player to the left of the speaker is going to pick next, and so on. After every player has selected a strategy card, then a bonus counter is going to be placed on the the strategy, strategy cards that are left. Those bonus counters on successive turns are going to give you bonuses. <laughs> Hello. <Yeah. laughs> mm. You're going to either get to take a, a trade good or a command counter, your choice. So what that does, in other in other words, is it sweetens the pot on the strategy cards that are left. If they're left for several turns, you might build up a they few bonus counters. Up, right. They might not seem so appealing, but suddenly a few turns mm. into the game, you're like, wow, not only do I get to do what that strategy card does, but I get all those bonus tiles as well. Each strategy card has an initiative number printed at its top. This number represents the order of play that you're going to, that the owner is going to play on the, for the rest of the turn. Uh, Just as I said, the order goes that initiative diplomacy, so on and so forth. When the turn order advances to an unchosen strategy card, you just skip right over that and go to the next one that someone has chosen. Let's just jump right in and, and give you a sense of what are these eight choices, you know, what are the choices that are out there in front of you, at least at the for the first person. The first person's gonna have all eight to choose right. from. I
0: kind I kinda of think of this almost as a Puerto Rico type of element. Yes, very I don't know much if you're so. gonna bring that up because you choose the strategy that you want, but when you take that strategy, everybody else kinda gets
1: a smaller version of that, what uh, you're getting a a smaller. I I was sandbagging on you a little, but (laughs) definitely there, there are sort of two parts to each strategy card with the exception to the first one, which is the initiative card. Um, so if you choose the initiative card, you're going to receive that speaker token, which allows you to choose first in the next strategy phase. So you're going to get to go first. You're going to have all eight to choose from the world is your oyster, so to speak. Um, you can also use the secondary abilities of all the other strategy cards without having to pay command counters to use them, which is a distinct advantage Huge. because you, as Dave's already indicated there's a limited number of those command counters and Having the freedom not have to spend those can be a a big deal. Now, of course, here's where I was sandbagging a little. All the other cards, with the exception of the initiative card, have two abilities, a primary ability and a secondary ability. The person who chooses the card gets the primary ability without having to pay anything extra. When they choose to execute that particular strategy card, the other people at the table, the other players, can do the secondary ability if they're willing to pay the cost. In most cases, the cost is pay a command counter. There might be additional costs. We'll get to those when I'm describing them. So for the rest of these, there's going to be primary ability and a secondary ability. Person who chooses gets the primary. Everybody else gets the secondary. Last thing to note about the initiative card is you can never choose it twice in a row. So it's going to be chosen by a different person. Once there's been an, a turn in between, you could go back and choose it again. On to diplomacy. This is number two in the list. The primary ability with diplomacy is you get to pick another player. That player is not going to be able to activate units in a system where you both have units. <laughs> so in other words, this effectively prevent. Pres- this effectively prevents that other player from attacking you in that round in most cases. There might be a few exceptions to that, but for the most part, if you see someone building up on your border, and you get this sense they're coming after you, you might want to pick the diplomacy (laughs) strategy action, because you can say, well, for this turn we're going to be friends, (laughs) whether you like (laughs) it or not. (laughs) I know I used that a couple times when I saw people building up next to me, and it definitely comes in handy. So that's the primary ability. The secondary ability is you can spend command counters to refresh Two planets that you've already exhausted from previous actions in in the action phase. Um, the reason that you might uh, exhaust a planet is to use its resources. Dave sort of explained there are the resources. There's influence. There's other reasons that you might. Uh, exhaust the planet, which you flip it over to show that you've used its, its whatever you used off that planet. It's kind of weird thinking, oh, my planet's so tired. It's exhausted. <laughs> <laughs> but you get the idea. You could use this this secondary action to bring those back into play, to use their resources twice, or you might be able to immediately use a planet that you've just taken over because usually when you take over a planet, it's going to be exhausted. Exactly. Uh, so that's number two, diplomacy. Number three is political. The primary action is first you're gonna receive three of the action cards that Dave's mentioned uh, and one command counter. Then you're gonna flip the top political card over and resolve it with some sort of vote. After the vote, you're gonna look at the top three political cards and kind of stack the deck for the next political round. You're gonna get to pick one of those three, put it on the top, so you get to know what the next agenda that's coming up is, and you put the other two at the bottom. Now I'm going to take a little aside here and talk about the politics because this is a really fun aspect of the game I think. There's this political deck and there are two main kind of agendas. Most of them are going to be either laws or elections where you elect a certain person to a particular title which might gain them benefits or in some cases (laughs) someone's like, you better not give me that title because I don't want any part of that. That's really bad for me it's going to be a simple majority vote. You're going to, uh, each player at the table is going to have a certain number of votes based on the race they play, the number of planets that they control. A number of variety of factors are going to add into determining how many votes you have. But there's this sort of metagame where you flip it over, you read out the law, which might be, you know, everyone that has more than three ships <laughs> in any system has to disband them because, you know, an era of peace has swept over the, <laughs> the, the, land and that's the law. Well, everybody gets to decide whether that law is enacted or down. So there's this discussion period with wheeling and dealing. Uh, the votes start to the left of the speaker. You know, it's sort of like being the speaker of the house or whatever. You're going to be the last person to cast your vote. Uh, in some cases, if you have a lot of votes, you may be the one who swings the the vote in one direction or the other. But it's a really fun social aspect of the game in terms of. Uh, they're, they're very chaotic. It's an element of chaos that Absolutely, all these yeah. cards bring into the game, and sometimes it's going to be to the benefit of certain players and to the detriment of others. And uh, the wheeling and dealing that goes on around there, uh, bribing people to to use their votes for right. one thing or another, is is really fun aspect of the game. So that's the political strategy card uh the primary action all this is going to happen if someone picks that the secondary action is that you can spend a command counter to draw one of those action cards which again are going to allow you they're going to benefit you usually in a kind of a one use Only kind of thing, you know, they might aid your ships in combat for a particular round or make you re-roll or there's just a variety of things. I'm not going to go into all those cards, but there's a ton of them. They're kind of rules breakers and they're definitely good to have a few of those stockpiled in your, uh, (laughs) in your little uh, can of worms. (laughs) Uh, So that's number three political. Number four is logistics. The primary ability is you're going to get four command counters. Now remember, we've already seen you're spending all these command counters to do the different things in the action phase, but also to do these secondary actions on all the strategy cards. So if you do the logistics thing, you're going to get four of these command counters from your reserve that you're going to be able to allocate, you know, right away to do all other things. Um, The secondary thing, you're also going to be able to get command counters, but you're going to have to pay for them. Um, You're going to have to spend influence, uh, which are on your planets. Each planet has a certain amount of influence. You can exhaust planets. For every three influence worth of planets that you exhaust, you're going to get one command counter, and uh, that's definitely going to be to your advantage. It's one of the few ways you're going to be able to recoup and, and add to your stash. So when that logistics turn comes up, I bet you're going to... Probably need to take advantage of that more. I
0: often think one than of the one of the toughest strategic parts of the game was managing your command counters. That's
1: yeah, it was pretty tough and very important, especially if you're if you're going to win. Yeah. Uh, on to number five, trade. You have two choices for the primary ability. Choice number one is you get is sort of pro trade. You get three trade goods. Plus, you're going to get any trade goods from existing trade uh, agreements that you have in place, and then you can negotiate or approve trade agreements between you and other players or between other players themselves, but you get the veto power. You can say, oh, I don't want that one to happen, or yeah, go ahead. Uh, So that's pro-trade. If you choose option number two as the primary, (laughs) you're anti-trade. You dissolve all All trade trade agreements that are existing, (laughs) and poof, they go away, and it's going to really cost people if if they were counting a a lot of income from their trade. The secondary ability... Uh, which is what everybody else is going to get to do, is you spend a command counter to collect trade goods for any open trade agreements you have. And remember, like Dave said, the trade goods are the things that you're going to use as kind of wild cards to build technologies and and have other uses in the game too. On to number six, warfare. Of course, what (laughs) would a Galactic Conquest game be without warfare? (laughs) The primary ability is you get to remove a command counter from the board and place it back in your command pool for reuse at your discretion so what this means in game terms is you could activate a system twice you could move a fleet twice in other words it gives you a ton of flexibility in the action phase to do things that might that other people aren't going to be able to do with their their armies on the board very advantageous if you're about to go into battle to have that (laughs) warfare on your side the secondary ability this one's very, very situational, and I'm not going to go into super amount of detail. You can choose to move a cruiser or a destroyer into an adjacent empty system and then spend a command counter to activate those systems. Without going, Dave's going to get into right. the combat stuff in a little bit. There might be a situation where you need to immediately spread out your forces and be able to do something with them. If that happens, you could use the secondary ability and do that. Number seven is Technology. The primary ability is you're going to get one Technology Advance card for free provided that you have all the prerequisites required for that thing. So in other words, you can't go from, you know, <laughs> bear skins and stone knives <laughs> to uh, atomic bombs without Dang. having the things in between. Uh, but the cool thing is it's free. You don't have to pay. It's the secondary thing you have to pay to get the technology. You can spend one command counter and then for every eight resources that you spend, you can buy a technology card again, provided that you have the prerequisites for that particular technology. And the technologies give you all sorts of advantages, allow you to build other units and expand your empire in in different ways. Last, but certainly not least, is the Imperial Strategy card. The primary ability is you're going to flip that top objective card that Dave explained how you're setting up. These objective cards are going to be things that will allow you to get victory points, like, oh, you must control five systems other than your home ones. The minute that you do that, you're able to, in the status phase at the end of the turn, you'll put a little marker on there, and you'll get the victory points for that. So that's one way you're going to get victory points. The other way you're going to get victory points is by choosing this Imperial card itself. After you've resolved the objective card, uh, you're going to receive two victory points. Boom. Uh, Right then. uh, And remember, the name of the game is to get ten victory points. So that represents 20% of the way to victory. So... There's almost never going to be a turn when this card is not going to be chosen for that reason alone, because it represents such a big exactly. point haul
0: to a fault. Unfortunately,
1: yeah. Um, lastly, before we get to that fault, is you're going to spend a, uh, the secondary action with the Imperial card is you can spend a command counter to build units in a legal system, even if you've already built there, or even if that system is not activated. So that is that is huge. Yeah, that you is. could definitely suddenly pop up uh, with new units where you might not have expected to have units or they've gotten trashed by having a battle earlier in the, in the action phase. Woo. There's your eight choices again. Uh, just to remind you, they are initiative, diplomacy, political, logistics, trade, warfare, technology, and lastly, imperial. The one thing that I'm going to just sort of say before we move on to the next part of the, the game rundown is that there seems to be a sort of strategy and card combination with how you choose these, these strategy cards themselves that, to my mind, really affects the, my overall opinion of the game. And that is the initiative and the imperial uh, cards themselves. I can't think of any reason why, if you have that speaker token, why you're not going to take the initiative card, and then when it comes around to your turn, you're going to take the imperial card, because that gives you 20% of the victory that you need. Depending upon the number of people you're playing, there's this sort of lockstep strategy that's just going to kind of rotate around the board, because you can't choose that initiative card each turn. And unfortunately, I think that really affects the the overall strategy of the game, if you know just going into it that at least two of those cards are kind of off the market, you you know which turns you're going to have to look at those other ones, right. but you're going to be hard-pressed when that little cycle comes around to you of choosing the initiative so that you can choose the Imperial on the following turn. Uh, unless you have some amazingly cool strategy all set up and lined up on the board, you're probably not gonna get the number of points that you would get simply by choosing that one card. In other words, there's not really a lot of strategy other than realizing this little card combination in doing that. And to me, that's a huge flaw. I don't know what else to call it, but just a weakness in the in the overall strategy of the game that it comes down to this just simple gamesmanship of, oh well, I'll take that and get two points. Mm -hmm. You don't have to build things. You don't have to do anything on the board. You're just gonna just by picking that card, you get twenty percent you know, the victory that you need. Uh, weigh way in here, Dave. What do you uh, I, think? I agree. And it's it's not a not a problem that's
0: gone unnoticed either. I mean everybody that talks about this game, talks about this to the point to where there are house rules, where people are changing things, and well, maybe what if you only get one victory point by choosing this card? Or I know that the expansion Shattered Empires is supposed to address some of the problems and stuff, but my main problem is is I, I always have a problem with a game that needs a house rule to make it you know, make sense. And you know, I, I feel like this mechanic that, okay, when it's my turn to pick first, I have to pick this one. Because if I don't, I'm behind everybody else. Right. It just kind
1: of forces forces you what to do every you know fifth or sixth turn when it comes to you. Especially on a game of this length, when you can tell that the reason that this was put in was primarily to shorten the game. I, I think that, That's what that was the motivating like. e- impulse behind putting this into the game, not to really make it a better game, but to shorten the game. And in my opinion, it doesn't really even shorten the game. In in any way, shape, or form, having right. played this game four or five times now, um, that that it, it doesn't—if that was its intended purpose—I don't think it succeeds at even doing
0: that. Right. Well, without play testing it ourselves a million times, I would think there'd be some answer in there um, of still having that imperial card, maybe without the victory points somehow. Uh, yeah. because there there is impetus to choose that card for other reasons that drive the game even without that and I'm sure there there could have been another way. Yeah, I mean send go- us
3: send
1: us your thoughts if you've played this, you know, more than either of us. I am I'm, I'm a little bit of a seasoned veteran at it, so I have a few legs to st- to stand <laughs> on, but you know, I know there are house rules out there and but to me, how could this game leave the gate with that kind of flaw? Right, built in from the get-go. That really disappoints, disappoints me, having played several different incarnations of this game. But let's move on. Cool. Uh, we'll get to overall impressions later on. Uh, that's the strategy phase. You're going to pick these eight cards. There's some really cool things that you can do other than this little lockstep you know, strategy, maneuver, the other things in between are so cool, but you don't get to use them as much as you might otherwise simply because of this the allure of those victory points, which is the name of the game. So let's go on to the action phase.
0: Okay, so now that we've completed the strategy phase, we move on to the action phase. Now, the action phase, you're going to have a choice of four different actions. The way that the, the whole phase works is that when it comes to you, you get a choice of those four actions. You get to take one of them, Everybody else around the table will get one when it comes back to you. You get to choose another one. You keep going with this until you choose the specific action that's passing, which we'll talk about in a minute. So the four actions are a strategic action, a tactical action, a transfer action, and a passing action. So let's talk about the strategic action first, since we just talked about the strategy phase. The strategic action is actually resolving that strategy card that you chose. The interesting thing here, here is that you have to do it. You have to take a strategic action once and only once during every round of play. So if you chose the warfare card, at some point in time when it's your turn, you have to actually resolve that strategy of the warfare strategy card. Um, this The reason being is because of the secondary action. Everybody else is going to get a chance at it. You can't just
1: pick it and say, oh, psych, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> so somebody else may be secretly cheering when they see you choose that warfare because they're like, woo I I secondary." I get to do the secondary thing now. Exactly. So
0: the, here's the fun thing. Um, the other act, One of the other actions that you can do is a passing action. You cannot take a passing action until you have first taken a strategic action. So you can't just opt out of the whole round and say, forget it, I pass, I don't want to do anything. You can only do that after you have taken your strategic action. So strategic actions and passing actions, one time, um, you're only going to take each of these one time. However, the tactical action and the transfer action, those you're going to take multiple times each turn, specifically in the amount that you have command counters on your race sheet to be able to pay for. So a tactical action is probably the biggest and craziest action of all of them because I think in my little synopsis there's like 50 steps or something to this. The possible things that can happen as a result of doing things in this particular action. So the first thing you're going to do is activate a system by using a command counter from your pool on your race sheet. Now this is This was unique to me. I've never played something like this. I'm not a huge war gamer, but you take one of these command counters, you place it in a system on the board. This is the active system. Units can only move into this system. Nothing can move out. Nothing can happen anywhere else on the board with your pieces. If you've activated a system, that is the system where everything is going to happen moving into it, and all the action in it. So once I got that, kind of my brain wrapped around that, I was cool, but it took me a few turns.
1: Now, you can activate multiple systems, correct? But it takes you other turns to do that, right?
0: Exactly. When it comes to to your turn, again, again, you can activate another one. When it comes to your turn again, you can activate yet another one, obviously limited by the number of command counters that you have on your race sheet. Gotcha. Um, But just one at a time. Um, so the very first thing, once you've gone ahead and activated a system, the first thing that happens is movement. Once, like I said, into that system only. And all of your ships within range that can move into that system, you are free to move them from anywhere that you want. So even though you're only activating one system, you can move ships in from multiple systems if they have the movement allowance that will actually allow them to get there. So once you've done all your movement, then you deal with PDS fire, which is the planetary defense system. When you activate a system, all planetary defense systems within range of that activated system can fire. And this is when the technologies come in because some people may have planetary um, defense systems that can fire fire, Several, from several systems away. So you have to pay attention to what you're activating because all of a sudden everybody around the table may be like, ooh, cool. I'm getting a pop shot, you know, at these ships as you move them by. So you take care of the planetary defense fire and then comes the fun part. Once everything's moved in, once you've resolved all that extra crazy stuff, then you get to the space battles, which can be fairly lengthy the actual battle system itself is easy but there's enough steps in it it can be crazy so before you start combat there is just a series of things that can happen before combat we won't go into any of those because there are many of them and they're all very situational exactly depending upon what happens so once you get to the point where actually you're going to um, have the battle. The very first thing is that you announce withdrawals and retreats, which I found interesting before you even have that first round of battle. You have to announce whether after this first round, I'm out of here. I'm just wanting to come in, take a pot shot and get out of here. If you don't announce a withdrawal, then your um, opponent can announce a, a, with- a retreat. So that's kind of cool. So once you make those uh, – did I just say with tree? Yes, you did. What the hell is a with treat?
1: <laughs> I don't know. I'm
0: I'm thinking of Halloween. I'd like something with a treat. With
3: treat. <laughs> knock, knock. Okay,
0: I'm possibly gone insane there for a small moment. <laughs> So after you announce your withdrawals and your retreats, then you're actually going to go ahead and do the battle itself. The battle is simultaneous, so both both players are going to roll dice. Each unit that you have has a battle value, and all the dice in the game are 10-sided dice. And like we'll take, for example, the Dreadnought has a battle value of 5. So to actually um, incur or to give damage to your opponent, you're going to need to roll a 5 or better on a 10-sided die. So it's really simple. Um, at the end of the battle, if... Um, there's any um, units left on either side, then you go ahead and deal with the withdrawals and the retreats and all that. If you didn't do either of those, then you have yet another round of battle. And this happens until there's only one side. It's always a battle to the death. Either run away or battle until there's only units of one player's side in that particular system. So there's tons of other stuff with battling that, like Stephen said, if we go into detail, we'll be here all all night. So we'll move on to after the battle, we have planetary landings, which is the fun part, because you can either have a friendly landing, a neutral landing, or you might have a hostile landing. That's all dependent upon whether there's enemy troops there, whether there's still one of those domain counters there that you might have to turn over and find out. So, And then of course, once you land, there's there's a chance of causing or having to deal with invasion combat. Because if there's other forces there, you're going to want to beat the hell out of them. It's pure and simple. And once again, there's a whole bunch of things that can happen before this combat happens. Totally crazy. Once you've figured all that out, you go through the dice rolling, which is exactly like with the ships, but you're just
1: dealing with the troops down on the planet. It's kind of the similar system. It's just one is in space and one is on the ground. ground. Bingo. The the steps that you're going to go through. Once once you've kind of learned it once, you're going to apply that again to the next.
0: Right, exactly. And I, I think this was... For us, more mind-boggling than others because we went ahead and dumped in a handful of the optional rules which bring in extra things that can happen before battles, whether they be in space or on land, so we were dealing with those, which was kind of crazy. But anyway, once you've um, determined that, obviously you're going to end with a planet being in control of one player, and if this causes, like if I take a planet away from Steven, then I'll get his little planet card from him, and like you said before, it's going to come to me exhausted, and I'll have to wait till next turn before I can utilize the the resources resources and influence. influence from it. So... Um, once you do that, then finally when you get to the end of the step, um, you actually have a chance to produce units, and you can only produce units um, in the system that you just activated if you have a space dock there, and if you have a space dock there, then you can build pretty much anything you can afford by using those resources and everything else, um, and that's pretty much it. That was that went by pretty quick in the game. In the game, the tactical <laughs> action the, didn't go by nearly that this quick. This is
1: the kind of meat of the game. The right? Strategy is where you're going to really think for a while, but it's not in terms of time. It's not going to take that long. Exactly. The action phases where the most of the game exactly that's takes where it's going to be crazy. So that, in a
0: nutshell, is pretty easy. You're going to activate a system, move your stuff in, have your space battles, land on the planet, have your planet battles, um, and then at the very end, you're going to have a chance to produce some units in that system. And that's pretty much a tactical action, so now moving on to the transfer action it's a very mu- it's a much smaller action, and what it is is it's allowing you to activate two adjacent systems since you can only move stuff into a system that you activate it's really kind of hard to flip flop units and kind of organize your stuff so you'll go ahead and use a transfer action for this so you can you know move some from one place to another and then one from another to an you know into adjacent
1: systems I had a Extremely difficult time keeping that <laughs> straight in my head. It's, it, it's not. It's counterintuitive. I think I go even that far as to say, even if you're familiar with some war games and things, that I, I think just it was the way, an the that was way, your, way. It's worded is yeah, just would, very difficult. Uh, Once you get it, it's not that hard. But just getting it that initial time exactly because it's took virtually
0: it's virtually the same thing as a tactical action without the battles. Mm-hmm. You're looking to just kind of remaneuver your. You know ships and reposition them because at the end you still get a production phase to where you can build stuff you can only do it even though you're activating two systems in the transfer action you can still only produce from one space dock in one of these systems so you don't get that benefit but a lot of times you'll you'll find that um, taking a tactical action is very limiting in what you can do with your actual units. So, after a few turns, you realize, man, I'm going to have to take one of these transfer actions just to kind of reset up yeah. and get everything deployed where I need it because
1: it's just too expensive to re- rely on tactical actions to do that for you. Yeah, it's kind of the setup. You probably use those in the setup, and then on following turns, right. you're going to use the tactical ones to do the action. Exactly. Battles. So, like I said, <laughs> yeah, I wasn't very smart in this game. <laughs>
0: so, once again, the action phase has the four possible actions, strategic action, tactical action, transfer action, and a passing action. Um, and most most times, you're going to, like I said, you're forced to do a strategic action. You can't pass until you do,
1: and then you'll take any number of the other two mixed in. Based on your command cards. Ex- exactly. Once, once you've done that and everybody's passed, then finally we have reached the promised land. <laughs> the status phase. <laughs> the, end of a, the end of a turn. <laughs> we, won't, we won't talk about how long our first turn took us. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yes, we will. <laughs> so the status phase, uh, when compared to the rest of the phases, is extremely straightforward. Um, most of the game functions are basically just kind of reset and refreshed. To, to, kind of prepare you for the, the next turn that's going to come up. Um, basically you're going to kind of go down this checklist. You're going to, um, see if anyone qualifies for either public or secret objective cards that have been laid out. Um, you're going to repair damaged ships. You're going to remove can't command counters from the board. Um, you're going to refresh the planet cards to show that they're active and ready for the next turn. Um, you're going to receive one action card and two command counters from, um, from your pool so that you can, uh, you'll have a little something to do in case you didn't spend anything to get more which is definitely part of the strategy of understanding when and how you need to replenish those absolutely command counters um, you are then going to redistribute the command areas and then uh, return strategy cards to the metal so that everybody has the you know actions out there to see what they can do um, and that's basically what you're going to do basically it's just a bookkeeping Right, exactly. In in a nutshell, it's bookkeeping. So basically, <laughs> it's not a simple rinse and repeat, but you do get the idea. It's strategy phase, action phase, status phase. Pick your strategy card, do a bunch of things that use command counters on the board and, and the strategy things. You're going to do a little bookkeeping at the end, and then you're going to start the turn again by choosing strategy cards. That's kind of the flow of the game. Uh, once the game's underway and you've had several turns around the board... Uh, you're going to get to the point where someone's going to actually win the game. How does that actually happen? When you advance your control marker to the 10th step of the victory point track, you're going to gain the power you need to claim the Imperial Throne on Mechatol Rex, unless during those objective cards, remember there's the Imperium Rex card that can come up that will immediately end the game under certain... Uh, conditions. If they've been met, that's the game's going to end and you declare exactly. the winner based on those conditions on the Imperial. There's, there's also
0: two other objective cards that make it end early. I think there's a supremacy and a domination card that if you meet the requirements for those cards, you win outright. Oh, oh, okay. You just win outright. And of course, there's a good chance that those cards might not be in the mix because remember, only half of the objective cards are going to be in any given game. Right.
1: Um, and remember during the, the status phase, one at a time in that same player order that has been in determined. Right. Players are going to qualify for the objective cards that are already laid out. Like the the ones where we were saying, "Oh, you've got 5 planets that you control outside your home system." So you're going to go from the player to the left or the speaker first and then to the left. "Oh, I get to put my counter on there." And that determines victory. So it can be the order determining that, you that initiative, you know, picking Absolutely. the initiative card at the right time as the end game approaches can be very important because you can say, "Oh, I need those two points from that objective card I'm gonna be able to go before other people I win doesn't matter that you <laughs> could have scored six when it got around to you I get it because I got there first bingo um, that's how you win the game I wouldn't know how to win the game <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't either <laughs> so Dave give give some overall impressions and just maybe a general your general thoughts here well we
0: we had five players. The game is primarily designed for six, but they do have rules for layouts and stuff for five players and all the way down to three, I believe. So we had um, five of us playing, and I'll be honest with you from the get-go, um, I believe that I was the only one that found any redeeming qualities <laughs> in this game. I don't think anybody else liked this at all. It took us about seven years ish hours seven to eight seven to eight hours generous
1: you want to be with our yeah yeah, exactly (laughs) stops for tequila
0: shots and food
3: there's true (laughs) um
0: while i definitely had problems with this game we already talked about the strategy card problem because i don't like any game that kind of forces you down a certain path they call it strategy and then they take the rug out from underneath your feet and say well but if you don't do this you're pretty much not going to win so that that was kind of a bummer um i come from a different angle than steven because he's He's third time, fourth time.
1: This is my fifth.
0: Your fifth. So he's done this guy five times. This was the first time I've ever played it, and it was there was so many things you can do in this game. I was quasi overwhelmed for my first time, and I don't know if um, I don't know if I was effectively using everything that I could possibly use. I think I was missing a lot of things. So I I enjoy this style of game, um, and. I'm not sure that it's ever gonna come out again just because it's so epic. It's really hard to get an eight hour block of time and six people together to do this and they have to be, obviously, from Steven's point of view, six crazy insane people <laughs> <laughs> Um to play this. But um I, I liked all the I loved the blend of Eurogame meets um traditional American style game, you know, where the American style you've got the units and you're out there, you know, beating people over the head with your ships and then the Euro mechanics come into play with choosing the strategies, you know, and doing the resources and tapping your planet cards out and stuff like that. I love the meld there, the blending of these two particular types of mechanics. I thought that was really cool. Um I, I wish it was just slightly streamlined, but there there again I think that's a personal opinion, because there's no shortage of people who really, really like this game. So you know there are people out here who you know who don't mind sitting down for the five hours. I imagine it can be trimmed down to five if everybody's um, if you if you're playing well-versed. with
1: people who've all played before. I right. think perhaps you could you could get it in in four to five hours. Right. <laughs> if and- you if you really know the the decision trees basically with all the different yeah, exactly. aspects of each phase of the game
0: that's why i felt every time i got to an, one of those aspects i think i only was remembering, you know, one of my four possible choices. So I was cheating myself out of all the options just because it's, there's so much stuff to learn in this game. I think the one the one thing that's really good about this game, really fun, I think you'll agree with me, is the political aspect. Oh, the, yes. You know, absolutely. those choices that come up in the interaction
1: between the players, mm-hmm. that was a hoot. Yeah, yeah. And it doesn't come up often enough, I think, right. because of that. You know, the, as previously <laughs> beaten like a dead yeah. horse, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. it just doesn't come up often enough, and I don't think although some of them are painful, it seemed like there were some that, I'm not sure that's just situational but it seems like they could even be ramped up another, the the volume could be turned up another notch on those to make them even a little more painful, or affect the game in a little more chaotic So, So, <laughs> way. having
0: co- coming to it from playing so many times and playing the other versions you know, what's your
1: thoughts on this? Well I don't think that Being overwhelmed is unique to you having played it the first time because I've never played a game of this where I didn't feel like there's just so much information overload that you know unless you've just committed a lot of the stuff to memory or played it on a regular enough basis to where you're like, oh, okay, this and this and this, and then can really get into the the deeper aspects of the strategy, that you're always going to have that kind of information overload from step to step because each step has – so many of those little things that, you know, variables that can come in to affect how you want, you know, which step or which right. you know, primary, secondary thing you want to choose and and making the right decisions in those times. Now, part of that, you know, is is fun because everybody's kind of on an even playing field right. with that respect. But, you know, I, I guess I would say I applaud the impulse to bring the Euro-style mechanics into this game to try to streamline it, but I think that... The impulse and the execution are two completely different things. And while they may claim that this game is streamlined, yeah, okay, great. It went from being a a 12 hour game. That was the average of the first, you know, several times that I played, was half a day. And, you know, I I guess I come off, I want to preface this by saying I probably come off, since we've covered some of the longer games, as People thinking, oh, well, these guys just don't like long games. And I don't think that's true at all because there are several longer games. I love Civilization. The classic Civilization is is one of my all-time favorite games. And and Arkham Horror, another fantasy fight game, which is a long, (laughs) evil, dirty, you know, game. But I love it, and I don't mind the length. The thing that really annoys me, I guess, the most about this game is how much, although it presents itself as kind of a galactic conquest game, is that... It really is you standing back and building up stuff and then having these just little isolated conflicts that you spend so much of the game sort of turtled up and building up your resources for these one massive right you know encounter. And then having to build up and do things like that, that, having played it enough times. In the original, it was even more uh, – the, they have fixed some of that aspect by having everyone take so, sort of their phases and the secondary actions at uh-huh. the same time. Where in the old game, you could easily get to the point where you're beaten down but not eliminated. And you can see that there's no possible chance that you're ever going to win the game, but you're not going to get totally knocked out of the game for like three hours. Right, and wow. that, that's terrible that, that's they've gotten weird. rid of that, but still, in this game, you're building up, you're building up, and the person who won, I think it was Jason who won right. you know his planets were all decimated, we had you know i mean we could see that he was about to win, so it makes sense that you're all going to try to throw right. everything you have at him, but it sort of has this anticlimactic feeling coupled with the fact that you're getting two of your points without really having to earn them, I think, in game terms by just taking the I Imperial just, card. That's, and there's gonna... just not enough conflict for it being this galactic conquest kind of game that the the political aspect I like, there, there are certain individual little mechanics that are sort of a game within the, the bigger game itself, which I thought were really interesting, but I don't know that it merits the time that you're going to spend by the end you could just look back and go, Oh, well you got the two points more often than I did. And despite the fact that I tried to get as many points as you could to keep up with you, you know, it, it just seems broken and too damn long for the, the other, for those other enjoyable (laughs) individual aspects that I'd much rather sit down. If I'm going to play a long game, give me civilization or Arkham horror any day that I don't think have as many mechanical issues, uh, and, and have more interaction uh, between the players than, than this one. Yeah, that's why I was, I was wondering if uh, if you are somebody who really likes
0: this style of game and you have a gaming group of friends who plays this, you know, is, um, is it actually become a better... Since I've only played it once, if you were to play this every week with a group of friends and all of this myriad of things became second nature, I mean, could it go beyond those one or two problems that we see with like the strategy cards and stuff like that and actually become a better game or or do you think yeah
1: let us know you know i'm just wondering if you because know, like I said I've only played this once I think I mean it has it has an audience I understand I mean to me I put it in this category of you know it's that rainy day where you've got a bunch of friends over and you've got nothing but time on your hands and you've got you know half a day you know your your right. buddies came over at noon and you can play till midnight and it doesn't matter that it takes you 12 hours exactly and you're you're into the you know longer you know, games where you might have to go, okay, well, we've got to look up the rules for a few, you know, 10 or 15 minutes because we can't figure out how to to resolve this thing. Or like you said, if you've got people who already have a command enough of the rules that you don't have to be consulting them as often as that, that, you know, it has its place. I can see with people who fit into that category, but I would just say caveat emptor that, you know, (laughs) the goober is cool and might, might lead you down the path to think that, Uh, you're getting something that is more refined because it is in its third edition than I really think it is. So it's it's your, your opinion that it just keeps getting bigger, but not necessarily better. Yeah, I mean, I think it has improved, but I don't think in the ways that I would want it to have improved, I don't think that those issues were addressed. I enjoy some of the Euro mechanics that were added to it, but I don't think that you know the ones the to me the fact that it is so long and they just threw in an arbitrary mechanic to try to deal with the length right. rather than re-envisioning the game in a way that would just make the game shorter within the other mechanics of the rules it just seems completely pasted on to add on the uh the fix of saying well right. after the objective deck goes down and and everybody gets two point you know 20% of your victory comes you know every turn if if you're lucky enough to draw that card that doesn't seem integrated enough into this really interesting world. I mean, the, the fictional world and stuff is is cool, but if you're going to sort of build it from the ground up again, I think they they missed the boat. Well,
0: cool. Well, it was uh, – we. Were, I was looking forward to playing this game ever since I bought it. I was very glad that I played it. Um, like I said before, I'm not sure that it's ever going to get come back out. Um, just because of time wise, I, I would I would maybe love to play this with somebody who has played it fifty times, and maybe could you know show me just stuff that I'm not paying attention to or, or don't know what's going on to see if this if there is, is actually a life to this game that I just can't see. Yeah. But um,
1: but it was it was interesting. Well.
0: That, I'm sure huh. this will
1: provoke some responses. We oh, got, we got oh. some responses before when yeah. we uh, we came down hard on some games. So <laughs> let us know at net Or net, And we'll be interested to see uh, the, the champions of, of Twilight Imperium oh. and to, to maybe give a, get us to see the game in a different light. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> It'll take more than tequila to get me to the table <laughs> with this one again, though. I can promise you that. Well, the unfortunate thing is
0: since we only had time to play one game off our list... We still have 175
1: games on the list. It's okay. We're we're down a big one. This is a this is a milestone one for you. This one wasn't, (laughs) and for me because I don't have to
0: play it again. This was equivalent to three or four or five games at least. Yeah. So Twilight Imperium Third Edition off the list.
1: Cool. I think it's that time again to give our sponsor a little bit of love. Yep. Um, now, if Twilight Imperium is something that sounds interesting to you, um, you can find it at, at Time Well Spent for uh, 49 dollars They're currently out of stock, but I would imagine they'll have it back in... Fairly soon, and that's a really good price. Absolutely. It normally retails for about 80 so a great way to, to pick up a ton of, <laughs> of goober. <laughs> and they have,
0: um, this episode, they have both the games in our back shelf spotlight, which is really cool. They got Ricochet
1: Robots for fifteen ninety nine, and Master Labyrinth for twenty six seventy five. Both Both good deals as well. Uh, we thought we'd talk a little bit about, they do um, uh, clearance sales every month at Time Well Spent, and get some really good deals on things that, you know, they just end up with a little extra stock on. there. There's no knock on the games, because there's some really good games on this list, right. but they kind of mark them down a little extra uh, to try to to move them out the doors, so um, we just thought we'd mention a few of the titles on there and encourage you maybe to go to Time Well Spent and check out the rest of the list. Um, Vikings, which we just covered, is actually on the October clearance That's sale. An excellent game. Just a little over $20, bucks 20 dollars 65 cents. That's pretty cool. I see.
0: I saw that they have uh, Pont Del Diavolo, which is a neat little game. I picked up. Uh, regular price
1: sixteen seventy. They've got it fourteen seventy. That's really good. You know, good. I mean, shoo. Um, then let's see what else. Oh, Guatemala Cafe is one that's that's been really high on my list. I haven't tried that one yet, and it's thirty one forty. Really cool, colorful pieces and and wacky two board system game. Just cool, really cool looking. I it, think it looks really interesting. To um, and uh, j- just a whole bunch of other other games on there. Some of them old, some of them new. Um, go to Time Well Spent, and you can see the whole list and see if there's something on there. I bet I bet there's something on there that oh. would would appeal to you. <laughs> and they they're still running their Merchants of Amsterdam sale. So that that thing is
0: a hoot. Yep, I've I've logged on nearly every day. I think just to kind of check out. Yep. To to monitor, you know how how many of these copies of these games people are buying. Oh, are they down to one or two yet? (laughs) I think when I logged on Monday, um, 10 hours gone. See you. Yeah, vista,
1: baby. Because <laughs> I was thinking about that. I was like, man, how, how low can I go? And I got bit by it because yeah. I didn't get it beforehand. Now, it's kind of funny. 10 uh, Days in Asia, which we just covered, ah. is actually the one that's up right now. That's no right. guarantee it will still be there by the time by you're that, hearing this. Right. But if you go, it's on the very top of the page to the Merchants of Amsterdam. You'll see the game. Every day it goes down by um, – in the week, it goes down 50 cents per day. Uh, on Mondays, it goes down a dollar, but it's going to keep going down until it reaches that magic sweet spot where people are like, oh, i got to have I it. I have then, it. And poof, they're going to go away. So um, keep checking that out. And then, of course, they're still running their shipping deal. Uh, the $150 free shipping. Right. Excellent. Anybody in the U.S. can take advantage of that, get free shipping, $150 or more. So uh, lots of lots of good deals to check out uh, right now and time well spent. Backshelf Spotlight. These games need some love, and we're going to give it to them. The back shelf spotlight shines on those games that may have slipped past your attention. Classic games, rare games, obscure games that you may not know about, but you should. If you're looking to branch out and try something new, this would be a good place to start. So we have the Backshelf Spotlight Connection Contest from episode 39 to resolve before we get on to the, the new Backshelf Spotlight. Uh, for those of you who don't remember, the two games in question were... Stratego. And Fox and Geese. So, uh... I cannot believe. That, no, I can't believe that someone got the connection. I, I can, I can almost believe someone could get the connection, but I cannot believe that it was the same person that got my wacky connection from episode thirty-eight. Crawled into
0: your head <laughs> two episodes in a row.
1: Get out of my head, Scooter B twenty-three. Does, if I didn't know better, I would say Scooter B has a camera somewhere at Spiel Central. I'm kind of worried about that, actually. So, Scott Bolderson, who is the name, the man behind Scooter B23, gets, gets the prize, and since he's already gotten a set of Spiel dice, he's probably wondering where they are. But I held off, since we owe him another prize, we're going to give him a copy of Rage, courtesy of Fundex Games, in addition to the Spiel Excellent. dice that he earned so well from the last episode. When you hear what this connection is, <laughs> you're not going to believe that somebody picked this out of Steven's brain. <laughs> so, the connection Obviously, between Stratego and Fox and Geese is the X Files. Duh. <laughs> so, uh, for those those geeks out there like me who love the X Files as well as other kind of science fiction techno- te- television, uh, Stratego is the game that Fox, Mulder, and his sister are playing when his sister, uh, Samantha, is abducted by aliens. And of course, we have Fox. Mulder from Fox and Geese, so Ta-da. obvious connection between Stratego and Fox and Geese, and believe it or not, there's Scooter B with with the connection wow. right there on the forums. Uh, I had I am going to award a second set of dice though because oh, I think okay. I thought you know we got to show some we got to keep the dice rolling here so cool. to speak. <laughs> cool. <laughs> uh, so I thought the most creative uh, guess that I saw in there was by a, a listener whose username on the Spiel site is. Sploosmer. I, I'm, I don't know what that means, but uh, his guess was that the connection was Rommel, uh, the General Rommel from World War II, right. because he's a general, which they have generals in Stratego, uh-huh. and he was also known as the Desert Fox. Very similar sort of lateral uh-huh. thinking to the X-Files Absolutely. connection, so uh, I'll be in touch, Sploosmer, here uh soon and and award you your set of spiel dice because i thought that was a a very noteworthy uh guess excellent so remember there's a connection between the two games that we're going to talk about this week uh log into the spiel.net go to the forums there'll be a little uh forum post for episode 40 write your guess down if you guess our mystery connection you're going to win a set of spiel dice or if the most creative no one crawls in our heads i may have to uh Look for electronic listening devices yeah, from to B for this next one here. And we're, we're throwing down the glove this episode, <laughs> yeah, baby. Let's I see hope. you guys get this one. <laughs> uh, so the without further ado, let's just move right on. The two games in the back shelf spotlight this week are... Master Labyrinth. And Ricochet Robots. Two excellent games. Let's take a look at Master Labyrinth first.
0: Um, it was published in 1991 by Ravensburger. It was designed by Max J. Kobet. It's for two to four players ages ten and up list for forty dollars you can find it online for twenty six to thirty two dollars. This game was out of print until just a few months ago when it's finally come back in print. So if you didn't have a chance to buy this several years ago, you can finally get it again. It's kind of hard to believe that it was out of print, too. Right. It's such a,
1: in my mind, kind of a classic. Right.
0: This, this game gets a lot of grief for being a children's game. While it is a great game to play with children, it also is a great adult's game. I think this was the first Ravensburger game that I ever bought. Oh. I think. And I've loved it all the time. So... In Master Labyrinth, you've got the magic formula that will make you THE Master Magician. But where can you get the rare ingredients you need? Hidden deep in the musty catacombs beneath an ancient ruined castle in the fabled Amazing Labyrinth. Of course, duh. So off you go into the labyrinth in search of crystals, mandrake, emeralds, and much, much more. But be careful, the winding corridors shift constantly and it's easy to get lost. Just kind of a fun little background because that's exactly what this game does comes with a board that is a grid of 49 spaces, seven by seven, and it comes with 34 tiles. Each of the tiles shows a picture of a portion of of a catacombs or part of the maze. Now, 16 of these tiles are actually already affixed to the board. Not just in picture or in illustrations. There's physical tiles that are attached (laughs) to the board. At the beginning of the game, you shuffle up the other ones and then randomly face up. You lay them out in the spots where the um, ones already affixed to the boards aren't. Then you end up with this neat little grid. Um, Everybody has a little token, a little magician guy who's going to be trying to wander around this maze. You put him out on the starting position, and then there are 21 numbered tokens that show these magical ingredients on them, And those are put out on the spaces on the board. Um, the object of the game is to try and collect these tokens in order by moving your little guide down the passageways until you finally reach one of these ingredients. But at the start of the game, none of this maze is going to be lined up. There's going to be dead ends everywhere. In comes the cool mechanic that is Master Labyrinth. There is one Labyrinth tile left over after you fill up the board. And on your turn, you're going to be able to take this one tile and slide it in in either side of the rows or either end of the columns. That will cause an entire row to shift and change the whole look of the Labyrinth. Hopefully, so you can now take your magician and fly down to get that one ingredient that you had to have. Usually it's not very easy at all. You're have to. you looking at it, oh, man, if I, if I put it here, this will slide down there. That will change this. Then I can go down here because in addition to collecting, like, ingredient number five, maybe that's the next one, you're trying to see how can I collect that without giving the next person ingredient six and seven and, you know, right. whatever. So it's simplistic and it's mechanic, but it can make your brain hurt. When you're actually trying to figure out how to. it's like those little slide puzzle, yes, it's like things where you're trying to rebuild the picture in a way. <laughs> exactly. So the end game is once everybody, once all the tokens are collected, basically all the tokens are worth face value. Um, at the beginning of the game, I glossed over this, you get dealt a secret formula card. And any ingredient that you collect that is included in your secret formula has a bonus 20 points for that. So face value for the tokens, 20 points, and then I think you get some other mis- miscellaneous points in there. But most points at the end of the game wins. You can set this game up in three minutes. And if you force everybody not to put you know their thinking caps on and think too bad, it's actually a pretty quick game. I enjoy it a lot. And remember, it has a evil twisted
1: connection to... Ricochet Robots, <laughs> uh-huh. uh, which came out in 1999. Uh, Alex Randolph is the designer. Rio Grande, Abacus, and Hansum Gluck are the different publishers that the game has had. Uh, it's for 2 to 20 players. Oh, yeah. It actually should probably be 2 to infinity right. players. We'll get to that in a minute. Uh, and it plays about uh, 45 minutes. You can find it online for between $15 and $20. Um so in uh, this game is almost as much puzzle right as it is game. You have a four-piece modular board that forms like a big large room with walls kind of spread around the board. Kind of similar to Robo Rally if anyone's mm-hmm. familiar with that game with the factory floor and the different walls and things. Um there are also 17 color-coded targets that are on the board. Um placed on the top of the surface are four robots um you're, what you're trying to do is you're trying to get a light-colored robot uh, to a randomly selected target that's on the board. So you're going to pull out a little uh, chit out of a bag that is going to tell you which which is sort of the target, where you're trying to get these four little, uh, I think they're resin-carved yes. little robots. They're sort of the same size as like a game pond, but they're really coolly yeah, carved really into these sort of conical-shaped uh, <laughs> uh, robots. So you're going to pull a little chit. Out of the bag, that's going to determine your target on the board and the color of the robot that you're trying to manipulate to get to that spot. When the game starts, you're not actually going to start moving anything on the board. You're going to just immediately start thinking. That's the beginning of the game is pull the chin out of the bag and think. What you're trying to think of is how can I get that color robot to the target in the least number of moves possible? Um, The trick is that once a robot starts moving... It's going to keep moving until it hits a wall or another robot stops it. Therefore, um, you're trying to find a way to manipulate all the different robots on the board with the board obstacles to re rearrange and realign the robot so that he'll go in the right direction uh, to get him to that target. Once you figured out, okay, I think I can do it in ten moves. Each little, each time you move a robot. Um, or move each time you move a robot, it counts as a move, whether it's the colored one that needs to get to the target or one of the other ones that you're purposely putting in the way to redirect him, that counts as a move. You're going to say, let's say 15, you pick up the little sand timer and you tur- you turn it over. The rest of the people are now on the clock. They have to try to sort of like name that tune. Well, I can name that tune in 14 notes. <laughs> I, you have to look at the board and say, well, I can do it in 12. Well, no, I can do it in 10. The person that ends up bidding the lowest gets the first opportunity to see if they can connect with that number of moves or less to the target. If they do, they're going to get that little chit, and that's going to count as you know a point towards... You play to a uh, randomly determined number of points. We, th- I think there are actual rules for scoring, but in general, because it's kind of a free-form game, you can just play as long as you want or exactly. as short as a time as you want. You can. It's a great filler game to have just sort of set up on the side, and anyone who might have gotten knocked out of another game or is waiting to get in, you could set up Ricochet Robot in two seconds. You set up this puzzle with the different ways the boards can be set up. You go, okay, Go. You know the the obvious strategy to the game is well you could immediately come in and you know have the board set up and say "Uh, seventy (laughs) four and set a really high number but then of course the next person could just say (laughs) seventy three it it really is a brain herder I particularly suck at this one I'm not very good at it but I think it's a great game to get you thinking about spatial and logic and the the sort of that. That uh, way that way of thinking about games is, is really fun, and there aren't a lot of games that fall into no. to this kind of category. I, I
0: love this game so much that I have both editions because you can mix the boards and even right. have many more things. The only one piece of advice that I would offer to players of this game is don't play with 14-year-old girls. <laughs> I was embarrassed more times than I can count. I would be sitting there thinking, oh, okay, man, I almost had – uh, I can do that in 10
1: moves. Every time, beat my butt like 10 straight. Yeah. The The last thing I was going to mention is there are two versions of the game, um, Ricochet Robot and Ricochet Robots. <laughs> um, the one's in a uh, maroon box and the other one's kind of in a bluish box. Right. Um, gameplay's identical, but the Robots version has a slightly more involved maps and uh, reflectors that will affect some color robots but not others. Um, you can mix and match. If you have yep. the things, it would be very easy. Or make a big mega board Pain. out of <laughs> it, which would be fun. And there's also, I'll include in the show notes a couple of places online to play. that you can actually play it'd online. Be an excellent online game. It'd be perfect just yep. with, because it is such a logical right. based game. It, would, it just lends itself so well to that. So uh, I'd encourage you to check out Ricochet Robots. And remember, it has a connection back to Master Labyrinth. Log into the forums at thespiel.net and see if you can jump inside our heads and, and you'll win a set of dice. Ruckloads of Goober. What is Goober, you ask? While sages and scholars may debate its subtle nuances, Dave defines Goober as either a game with a ton of quality components or a game with really unique components. Now, we're not saying that you should always judge a book by its cover, but the stuff, the Goober in a game, can be a factor in having fun. Great Goober can make an otherwise average game excellent. Great Goober can make an already great game sublime. Let's see what the Goobermeisters have for us this week. So I'm going. We've we have we are in a big supersized episode. So I'm going supersized price. Oh yeah. <laughs> On the game this week, I think this will hit the limit. We'll be hard pressed to go over this for the the most expensive Goober game. Two hundred dollars. Uh, keep going. Three hundred. Keep going. Five hundred. Not even close. What? What are we talking about here? How about $3,100? Oh, Oh, man. Given the current exchange rate with the Euros. Woo! Now, this one came as a suggestion from a fairly new listener, Christoph von Zadel uh, from Dresden. Uh, He... it deserves all credit for bringing wow. this game to my attention, and, and it is completely worthy of truckloads of goober. So, in English, the the name of the game is Abbey of the Walking Books, or in German, apologies for the pronunciation, Die Abtei der Wandernen Bücher. Uh, it was uh, wow. published in 1993. Thomas Fackler or Fackler, I don't know how to say his name, uh, is the designer. He's it's a self published game. Um, It's for three to five players, and it plays in about 45 minutes. Uh, It goes for... 2,600 euros, which at the current exchange rate works out to just a shade over $3,000. Oh, wow.
0: What's the gentleman's
1: <laughs> name that designed this? Thomas uh, Fackler, uh, Fackler. Thomas, um, I think the spiel needs a playtest copy oh, I, I totally of this think game. So. A review copy, especially <laughs> exactly. since there are only 200 copies of this game in existence. So it's, <laughs> I, you know, it's billed as kind of a work of art as well as, as a game. And I right. think it's probably well deserved from what I can, what I've seen of it so far. So here's the goober. Excellent before I give you just a tiny little rundown on the game. Um, The box and rules are uh, on handwritten parchment. Uh, The board itself is handmade paper that has been screen printed by hand and then watercolored. Very cool. Uh, The miniatures themselves are made of clay, each carved individually by hand and then handled with magnesium dioxide and burnt to sort of give them a weathered kind of look. And they're all monks and abbots. Oh, okay. Sort of a medieval game. We'll we'll get to that in a second. Um, They're little wooden books that are really cool um, that are made out of pear wood and then inscribed with 10-karat gold letters on the top of them. And the books have a little slot in them where they can hide the letter cases that you're going to put inside them and each one of those is made out of oak and you're going to write things on them essentially this game is a, a word a, a kind of a mystery slash word huh. game um it was inspired by name of the rose cool. and you're going to see some similarities to another uh, game put out by days of wonder mystery of the abbey mm. not mentioning any names <laughs> uh it one player is the abbot and he's going to write down a seven-letter word and then break it down into several parts and put them on the little letters that go in the the bookcases uh-huh. and distribute them into the different books around the abbey. The other players, the monks are going to be hindered by that word player, the abbot. They're trying to hunt down these books and find out the words. The monks have uh, novices at their disposal that they can send out on errands to try to find them. Certain books can only be found at night and in certain parts of the abbey. Uh, and there's a time limit. You have to try to reassemble the word within two days or the abbot wins. <laughs> so, very interesting mechanics and you can see how Mystery of the Abbey, right. you know, at hmm. least on the surface of things, seems to have borrowed some of the, some of the ideas. I mean, granted, they're both borrowing from Name of the Rose, exactly. <laughs> so you know, imitation is the sincerest <laughs> form of flattery here. But that's a little bit about the gameplay. But it's the components, the goober. Wow. You know, this is truckloads of goober after all. That I mean, these hand carved things all yeah, include the, pictures. The they're pictures very are amazing, very very cool looking. Uh, probably not on anybody's uh, to buy list right now unless they hit the lottery. Yeah, but, well, you know, now that
0: our listeners have heard this, I mean, all those copies are going to be bought up. Oh, ASAP, definitely. absolutely.
1: And and one sent to us, of course. Yeah. The Game Sommelier, or Right Game, Right Crowd. Like matching the perfect vintage with a delicious meal, The Game Sommelier finds the right game for any crowd, age, experience, or personality. Each week, one of us must pick five games to meet a fiendish challenge. Each week, one of us must earn the right the honor to be called the Game Somalier. So, Dave, you're on the hot seat this week. Your challenge, if you remember, uh, dates back to uh, the letter from Gregory in Seattle. And right. was talking about colorizing games and, and reprinting games. So, in a nutshell, here was your challenge. Your challenge was to come up with a do and don't list for a gamer who's kind of been out of gaming and is coming back into gaming. To find a mix of five games that have either been genuinely improved through being reworked and updated or have been ruined and disfigured by a misguided remake. So, in other words, remakes to try and remakes to avoid. Okay. What do you got for us? Cool. Well, the first
0: thing um, I looked at were there are so many games that are being redone now. I've limited my list to things I've had experience with. So, I. Uh, you very- read a lot of stuff, but uh, on this list, I wanted to give you my opinion of stuff that I've definitely played. So I've got three that I think have been improved and two that I think um, have been hurt badly by their remakes. So we'll start with the first one that I really am glad they remade, and that was Turf Horse Racing, 1995 Gibson Games designer Rainer Knizia, which um, six years later went on to become Royal Turf from Aaliyah, and another five years later went on to become Winter Circle by Face to Face. I love, love, love this game. If it wasn't reprinted, I probably would have never had a chance to play it. And all of these versions have pretty much stayed true to the exact game, just improving in the goober every time they do it. So the latest one that's in print right now is Winter Circle. I, I love it. It's an awesome beer and pretzels game. I think face-to-face has done a wonderful job bringing this classic back for everybody to play. So... Um, I'm just glad that it's out there. Everybody should have a copy of this. It's
1: a wonderful game. I wouldn't have thought of that one, and I think it's a, a great choice, though, because, because it has, you know, they haven't messed with what made it good, right. but yet they've enhanced it with, exactly. each, with each successive edition. So, thumbs up. Excellent.
0: Okay, so now one that might be kind of a surprise that I'm not happy with, because this is what I would almost have to say my absolute favorite game. I'm not going to quite say that. It's Robo Rally came out in 1994, Wizards of the Coast, designed by Richard Garfield. This game is awesome. There's almost nothing else I can say about it. Unfortunately, in 2005, Hasbro decided that they would remake it. Oh my God, did they ruin this game. If we just look at it strictly from a component thing first. The game boards, you can't even call them game boards. They're like the back of a tablet of paper. Yeah. I mean, the weren't the... Quality of the components is horrible. Do we have little metal um, robots anymore? No, they're little plasticky guys. When this game originally came out, it was like forty bucks. It was only just a handful of years later when they did this remake. They charge an extra ten dollars and they take out thirty dollars worth of components. You know, now that's just the components. Now we're talking about the regular game. That I guess they decided that they needed to dumb it down for everybody. You know, yeah. I really enjoyed the, um, the virtual robots at the beginning of the game, yeah. and sometimes when you power down and you come back in and stuff, and they decided to do away with that completely. So there's like this little starting board. Now everybody doesn't start in the same spot. So when you're creating a board, you're forced to find a starting board that will have everybody kind of on equal footing even though they're starting in kind of different locations.
1: Just for those who aren't that familiar with Rally, it's a basically a race game. You're trying to right. race your little robots on a factory floor, not totally unlike Ricochet <laughs> robots, kind of exactly. funny, uh, to a flag or a series of flags on the board and you have cars that you can move around just – in a nutshell, just cool. in case there's a few people out there who, <laughs> who don't know Robo Rally at all. Yeah, it is just one of my favorites. Um, there are one
0: or two redeeming qualities um, if you were somebody that already owns the original. There was one or two components that it has to have been by accident that were kind of neat. They have 3D plastic flags. Oh, I thought yeah. that was kind of neat. That's an indefinite improvement. Um, cheesy because they make you put stickers on them. For the numbers, why didn't they just etch it in or just go that extra mile and make it cool? But for a game that I absolutely love, and I was stoked when I heard this was coming back in print, and then I opened up a copy, looked at it, I'm like, what is this junk? You know, this is not even remotely the same quality, the same feel that you're going to
1: get by opening the original. Yeah, I, I guess I would have to agree with that. If you can find the original, you're way better off finding the original than than this. It's better than nothing, but right. I mean, you're paying more and it's not nearly as good. They've they've definitely harmed it and not helped it. Bingo. Uh, so I would I would give it a thumbs. I give your choice a thumbs up, but the game <laughs> itself a thumbs <laughs> down. Excellent. <laughs> I think.
3: Okay,
0: so my third one is another one that I'm very glad was redone. Um, Grand National Derby, 1996, put put out by What What's with you and all the race games tru- here? Trust me, this one will make <laughs> sense. But, well, this race game is also by Rainier Canizia. <laughs> hmm. However, one year later, after it was Grand National Derby, Avalon Hill published it as Titan the Arena. Oh, yeah, that's right. And... <laughs> I could not think of a better retheming of a game. I mean, the horse racing thing. Okay, you're betting on horses to finish. Okay, that's kind of cool. But when they retheme this, heaving monsters into a coliseum and just going after each other. Awesome, awesome, awesome. And like I said, it still was Rainer Canizia. He was still involved in this. And at that point, it was just, you know, a basic retheme. They had tweaked some of the mechanics. Um, like I said, that was Avalon Hill in 97. And then finally, in 2004, Fantasy Flight Games went after this puppy. And it's now called Colossal Arena. Fantasy Flight, um, upgraded the components, the cards, the artwork, everything was gorgeous. There were a couple mistakes they made in the rules. They weren't actually mistakes. They were choices that they decided to change. Did not make people very happy, so they actually officially have made some changes on their website oh, really? to say, you know, hey, these are the rules tweaks that you should should use. The cool thing that I like about the newest version is they've added in four extra creatures. Oh nice. So usually you had just enough creatures to play the game. Now you have four extra ones, so every time you sit down to play it, you
1: can kind of decide the makeup of the creatures that you're gonna heave in to battle each other. Well it's it's a good case of the theme actually affecting the design and not just Think, being yeah. pasted on yeah. because you would never guess that it was originally a horse. Racing no, game because exactly. the, the battling monsters definitely comes through in the way the game is right, and when they, the mechanics when they, of the game works. When I, they I rethemed think.
0: it, they gave each of the creature special abilities, which the horses weren't going to have yeah. magical abilities. <laughs> my horse has rocket shoes, <laughs> you know. So, so this game, you know, huge huge benefit from being redone. I definitely thumbs up. You're, you're batting a thousand so far. Cool. Okay, my last of the bad games, and this is because this is one of the best games ever. And the game is Cosmic Encounter, 1977 by Eon. The designers are um, Bill Eberle, Jack Kettridge, and Peter Ulatka. Classic, classic game of alien powers. Influential, too. Influential to a myriad of not just individual games, but entire styles of games. I mean, totally amazing. This has had several incarnations. um, Like I said, the original was 77. 1991 Mayfair had a handful of games that came out. Um, The game in question, the version in question, is the 2000 Hasbro version, where they just raped this game over the coals, so it basically didn't even... It's a shadow of its former self. Yeah, exactly. First of all, one of the cool things with this game is the quantity of players. You can play with six people. The more people, the better. The Hasbro version, four people. And why do you think they did this? Just probably because they couldn't afford to put the goober in for the extra two people. Probably. A game that relies on as many players as possible, and immediately you take you know down Mm -hmm. to four players. And then the alien powers. All the different, I mean, I think in the earlier versions, you know, 50, 60, 70, just tons of these alien beings, they just hacked that down to almost none in comparison, which is, hello, that's the whole game. You know, in addition to that, there were several other mechanics that were slightly dumbed down. So this version was a please stay away from this version. If you're looking for Cosmic Encounter, I can tell you right (laughs) now, stay the heck away from the 2000 Hasbro. Interestingly enough, we have Fantasy Flight Games picking picking this up in 2008. Will they make the same mistake that Hasbro made? Hopefully not. I know that they have um, forums on their webpage where they're actually asking gamers, you know, what should we do with this game? Because we know that this is kind of like, you know, the Ten Commandments. I mean, how can we not (laughs) piss everybody off when we remake this game? So that's cool. (laughs) Yeah, that's good.
1: But So like I say, 2000 Hasbro, Cosmic Cosmic Encounter, bleh. (laughs) (laughs) I would totally agree with that. definite definite agreement on the <laughs> and the thumbs up.
0: <laughs> okay, now my last one, and this is a game that I think um, I am so happy it was reprinted, and they did an amazing job. And you're going to laugh by who did this. So the original is uh, the game is a choir. The original was um, made by 3M in 1962. Designer Sid Saxon, amazing game. If you don't own this game, you must have it. It's great. Believe it or not, Hasbro remade this game in 1999, and they didn't screw it up. How? <laughs> Yay. Yeah, it's amazing. <laughs> it still retained everything while upgrading all the components to amazing quality. And it's just a classic game that everybody should own. So if you're somebody who's going, I would like to try acquire, but I really better have the original... This is the one case where you actually don't unless you're a collector, you don't need the original. Get the 1999 Hasbro. It's the same game. The goober is awesome.
1: Amazing. Yeah, I would I would I can get behind that one too. You're 5 <laughs> for 5 here cuz the the goober definitely adds an extra element to the game. Um, and it's, it's definitely retains all the, the great qualities about the classic and is only enhanced by the remake. It isn't hurt by it. Excellent. So definitely fits, fits the challenge at hand, and I think you've passed with flying Excellent. colors, my friend.
0: Now, I don't need thumbs for these, but these are kind of honorable mention because okay. there's tons of these remakes that I really liked. Just two more real quick. On Guard got turned mm-hmm. into a game called Duel. Yeah. get this game if you possibly can it, you is a hoot. It. Yeah. it is a hoot we've covered it on past episodes. exactly. and the case of the elusive assassin was turned into a game that we all know as sleuth oh, which okay. is a great great That's fun. great game I didn't know that one so check those remakes out they're very cool
1: <laughs> name that game Listen close to Clue, solve puzzle, find game title, email us, win prize. Send your guesses to stephen at the spiel or dave at the spiel dot net.
2: Five, four, three, two, one,
3: fire! Fire!
1: Spots. no spots at all what a hothead little white rat uh. name that game
0: so I guess that um, brings up your challenge it does now we're, we've got a challenge sent in by me <laughs> <laughs> and this challenge is closely related to the challenge that I just had to do huh. same tree different branch okay so I figured we would kind of, this would be a good time to just do this right now we just kind of talked about games that got a new life in their new versions. Now we're going to talk about games that kind of had their life extended by the print of expansions. Oh, okay. So what I want you to do is kind of pick a, a who's who of games that, let's say you want to have an, a, a game expansion game night. And right now there are a plethora of games with expansions. Holy crap, yeah. So your job is going to be to find games that are... That where the expansion is integral or whether the and where the game benefited greatly from having that expansion printed versus the games that you don't want at your party because they've been ruined by the expansion. It's like almost the is like, I can't play that game now. It's horrible with that expansion. Okay. Or maybe just there's so many expansions for this game. There's so and much overkill <laughs> that you don't ever even want to think about the original game anymore because they've run it into the dirt so bad. Mm-hmm. So any combination of those so that it's you a want mixed to find, one like, ex- like yours was exactly. Okay. I figured we keep it the same. So find the games that you want at your party, and the games that you would never want at this party, <laughs> just based on the expansions
1: that are out for it. Okay, well that's fun. That's a that's a great follow up. So cool. <laughs> balls back in my court. <laughs> I'm ready to serve. Excellent. Mailbag. It's time for you to let us know what you think. Comments, questions, criticisms. Let us have it. So we have one nickname to award this week. Excellent. A a generous listener of The Spiel who's decided to to part with a little moolah to help us keep the show going. Awesome. And totally appreciate it. Remember, you can donate to The Spiel on the left-hand sidebar of thespiel.net. You'll find a little donate button. You can make it a monthly subscription or a one-time donation in... In any case, we always appreciate and love it when uh, people value what we're doing and, and couldn't appreciate it more. And, and the little perk for joining the the list of Spiel donors is you get a game-themed nickname. So our thanks, and the nickname goes out to Five Card Nancy Pogel. Excellent. <laughs> this Woo-hoo! is a really fun. I encourage you to look up Five Card Nancy, Nancy exactly. on, uh, <laughs> on the Board Game Geek. It's very fun. <laughs> Excellent. So thank you, Nancy. Uh, on with the mailbag here. Um, this, the first item comes from Hans Vonderdrift, uh, of Brisbane, Australia. And this one has Dave's name written all over it. I had to show him the video in person. I couldn't just send him the link cause I just needed to see his face. Awesome. <laughs> now I'm not going to tell you much. I'm just going to put a link or embed the video in our show notes cool. because it has to be seen and not described. Um, it's called the world's greatest dice roll. It is sponsored by an online like casino as like a promotional thing, but if you can get past that. This is just the coolest thing in the world. I'm just going to say three things about it. Helicopters, dice the size of a truck, and a mountain in Greenland. Hmm. You fill in the rest. (laughs) Check it out in the show notes. It is awesome. Thank you, Hans, for bringing it to to our attention. Excellent.
0: So we got an awesome email from Andrew Ruslan, who sends in and says that every time he hears the Truckloads of Goober intro, when he hears you can't judge a book by its cover, he always, in his mind, hears the word Goober instead. (laughs) That is awesome i 'm glad we could climb into your <laughs> brain and make you
1: always hear goober instead of cover awesome <laughs> uh, yeah thanks andrew that 's awesome uh let 's see uh marku Jatinen, i hope i 'm pronoun- i hope my finish is good in Finland. He weighs in with some good advice for dave 's romantic game. Uh, getaway. it's is still this, coming back to haunt you is this never going to stop <laughs> the game Small, yeah he's just he just found the show and he's been listening Excellent. to all the back catalogs. so he had two suggestions to to save you from cool. from you know marital <laughs> strife uh, his suggestions are two of the cosmos two player games uh, he he suggests uh, summertime and flower power in the Cosmos two player uh games. Oh, okay. as ones that you yeah, might those would consider, be great. Which I, I could definitely see. And he also goes on to say, uh, this is a quote from him, if I would personally pick something to play with my wife, it would be Lost Cities or Ingenious, because she loves both of them. There you so go. So can't go wrong with either of those two either so You know what? It, this coming February, I think I'm taking a hiatus <laughs> because I know
0: what's going to happen in February. Oh, it's, some, some, it's somehow. coming back. Oh,
1: stop. <laughs> we got to make sure that you're the one on the hot seat when that comes around. <laughs> but thank you, Marku, for that, yes, uh, that little bit of advice. Kevin Rohr uh, put up a note on the forums about um, a con that's coming up, a game con in Louisville, Kentucky, uh, called LAG, or LAG Con, Um, on November 9th through the 11th. um, All the details are available on the forums at thespiel.net. Thanks for posting that there. Okay, excellent. And. Um, I'm not sure if this is the last one, but Tim Phelps sent in
0: a thing saying that we had made some errors when we discussed fire and axe. He said when you raid a town, you can actually only make up to three attempts. Um, after all those fail, then you have to wait your next turn. And he's correct. We yeah, just kind of glossed over that. glossed
1: over that a little bit too but, much. So
0: though. thanks, Tim, for sending that in
1: and setting us straight. Lastly, I think we just need to remind people about the poll. Um, okay. We still have the poll. goes for two full episodes now. Cool. Um, the poll has to do with the the remakes of games and what you want to see in a remake. You know, better goober. Uh, you want to see them fix possible quote-unquote flaws in the old exactly. version or rules variants. Log into the spiel.net. We've already got some – there's a nice discussion going on there. Cool. We're sort of prompted by Gregory, but uh, remember that poll is still active, so check that out. Well, I think uh, our ship has finally made it full circle through the galaxy and back here to Earth. Wow, just when you think we can't get any longer, we can. (laughs) If we were doing, you know, the Einsteinian principles and and, uh, had been traveling at the speed of light, uh, everybody else will be too old to even listen to the spiel by the time this episode gets back to Earth. (laughs) But hopefully that's not the case. Uh, Thanks, thanks again to Time Well Spent for sponsoring the Spiel. We appreciate their sponsorship, and remember, uh, helping our sponsor helps the Spiel too. Without further ado, I'm Stephen Conway, and I'm David Coulson. So remember, whether it's the roll of a die, the turn of a card, or the flip of a tile, you
0: don't have to play to win. You You just just have have to to play. play. Um, which is, you can't judge a book by its he whenever, he whenever he hears... Okay, I forget that.
3: <laughs> I said exactly yeah, because I'm thinking that. <laughs> That's too funny. Can't judge a book by its cover. Cover.